Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. You're listening to the Mark Steiner Show right here. And Soundbites, our weekly look at food, the environment, and our future. Uh, here on the Mark Steiner Show on WEAA, your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Marvel Public Radio at WSDL 90.7 FM. On the way to our conversation, I want to remind you, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From school funding to testing, you can learn more about the important issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association website at marylandeducators.org. That's marylandeducators.org or at steinershow.org. The Maryland State Education Association's banner is there. We begin our sound bites today with uh, a program coming out of Yes Magazine, one of those journals that we partner with a great deal, uh, and a fascinating piece that was written entitled Radical Farmers Use Fresh Food to Fight Racial Injustice and the New Jim Crow. And we are joined by Jalal Sabor, who is a farmer and prison abolitionist who helped start the Freedom Food Alliance, a collective of farmers, political prisoners, and organizers in upstate New York committed to incorporating food justice uh, to address racism in the criminal justice system. Uh, and Leah Penniman, who is a farmer and educator based in Albany area, and wrote the article we talked about, Radical Farmers Use Fresh Food to Fight Racial Injustice and the New Jim Crow for Yes Magazine. Uh, and Leah and Jalal, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having us. And folks, join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here by email at talk at steinershow.org. You can log on to our Facebook pages, tweet me at Mark Steiner, but do call in if you can. 410-319-8888 uh, is the number to call. So let, let me begin here. I, I, it's a little background. Then. Let me start with you, Leah, how you came across the story and what the background is to all of this. Oh, sure. Well, it's not so much that I came across the story. It's more that I felt part of the story. That's, um, I like that. That's as good. As an African-American uh-huh. uh, farmer who's been integrated in the Black Lives Matter movement um, under many names since I was a child, um, it's something that I could not ignore was the connection between the ways that all the racism in our society uh, permeates not just the criminal justice system, but the food justice system, transportation and housing. And uh, clearly we needed to do something about it aside from taking to the streets, also building new alternative institutions and organizations from the grassroots. So our farm has um, been around for the past four years and we've really made it part of our mission to figure out ways to reconnect our communities to our ancestral right to belong to the land and to ensure that fresh, healthy food is a human right and not a privilege. And so we've accomplished that through um, a number of programs, including the ones I wrote about the restorative justice program and our collaboration with the Freedom for Alliance. And Jalal Sabor, it's good to have you with us. I, I, I'm, I'm happy you could join us today. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, this is, and I, I, let's go back to some of the history of this. I mean, when I read this piece, I, w- I was taken with the, the people that inspired you in the very beginning, uh, people that uh, many people in in our world just really don't know very well, but they should, people uh, people like Herman Bell and who he is and how he inspired you and others to kind of get this program started. I mean, t- talk a bit about your, yourself and, and how and how this came to be for you. Yeah, yeah. For me, I was um, doing a lot of food justice organizing in the city, and I was making that transition to becoming a farmer and moving upstate and wanted to make those connections more and more and knowing uh, knowing the history of Herman Bell and him working with farmers in Maine and doing the Victory Gardens project um, and having, you know, somewhat of a relationship with people that were a part of that and just meeting with Herman and meeting, like, how great he was, you know, just how he's just, like, an amazing person. Um, but I had to go meet with him in prison, and we all had to meet with him in prison, and he's been doing time um stuff around Black Lives Matter when he was organizing around 40 years ago. Um, and he's in jail for organizing around Black Lives Matter, um, stuff that the Black Panthers were doing um, and the Black Liberation Army and the Black Liberation Movement was doing and just meeting him. And he's just been like a great inspiration and wanted to, you know, support him and making sure that he can come home. Um, he's like, he has kids and he has grandchildren that he hasn't seen. You know, he's missed his his mother and his father's funeral, and he's just like, been suffering in prison. Um, so trying to figure out a way to support him, but also do some of the work that he was doing when he was out. So in continuing that legacy of um, the free breakfast program that the Panthers were doing and the Victory Gardens Project and all of that work and, and making sure that we can 
make those connections that people have lost and talking about some of that history that people have lost. And, and I, I guess it's, it's a little bit about Herman Bell, I think, because what he did and how he started this farm while still in prison, uh, Herman Bell being, many people consider Herman Bell a political prisoner, much like yeah. Eddie Conway here in Maryland, who has been a guest on the show many times and I've known for a long time. Um, but he was accused of killing two police officers, always maintained his innocence um, as a member of the Black Liberation Army and the Black Panthers, and uh, has been doing this time. But he started, literally, he started a, he started a, a, a farming operation while he, obviously while he was in prison. But can, we, can you all talk a bit about that? Let our listeners know, because that was a really amazing, unique, unique thing he did that kind of, that you all have run with and, and, and grown with him. Yeah, he, he met um, Mike and Carol, were two farmers in Maine that um, were part of the farm process, and they were really like instrumental in helping starting that. And just them connecting with Herman and different organizations that were connected to people that needed the access to food that were in the Bronx and to in Brooklyn and different parts of New Jersey and like Newark and all these other places that um, didn't have access to food. Um, Herman Bell had those connections and were able to make the the two people, the farmers and the folks that needed the food, come together and and build that project. So, yeah, from in prison, he was doing that with Mike and Carol, and they were able to organize volunteers um, that would go up to Maine and volunteer their time and farm on the land in Maine and, you know, make sure that they supported the community up there and, like, gave food out and was growing food for the people in Maine in that rural community, but also were bringing food down to the urban community that needed it. Um, and it lasted for a good while. They were they were growing a lot of food. They were growing tons of food and getting tons of food out. Um, but it wasn't, you know, they weren't able to maintain because it was just awful, like, volunteer support work um, and no, like, really outside or government funding. So it was just off the community effort that they were able to last for, you know, around seven to ten years they were going pretty full, you know, full force. And so... Yeah, it was pretty inspirational to, to know that work that they were doing around providing organic food at a time that no one was really talking about organic food, you know. Um, in our community, we weren't really, like, able to access that, like, really fresh organic food that was, like, sustainably grown. Um, and they were making sure that people were accessing that food for free, you know. So it was pretty in- inspirational. So and and um, uh, Leah, talk, talk a bit about this. The, one of the things that kind of inspired all this and that, that inspired you as well, um, uh, Soul Fire Farm, and how this is all connected. Mm. Well, I mean, I can speak to that. I think that Jill and I have been friends for a few years, and we've talked a lot about how farmers of color like ourselves can kind of collaborate and work at the intersection of uh, the reform or, or criminal justice system or the abolition of prisons and food justice. And, you know, one of the programs I'm really excited that we have going on at Soul Farm is a restorative justice program. Uh, there's this really incredible lawyer friend of mine who's working with it, the Albany County DA, and just has identified, you know, the school to prison pipeline and how it's operating on a local scale. So we have a lot of young people, particularly young black men, as young as 11, 12 years old, that are um, getting originally charged with loitering. And um, for those who don't know, loitering is sort of an invented crime that was created as part of um, the Black Codes following slavery and reconstruction time as a way of uh, continuing to persecute and subjugate Black people who were unemployed. So it's a crime to stand around, a crime to be unemployed and uh, a way to keep people incarcerated because you know, the Third Amendment of the Constitution says that slavery is legal once you have been convicted of a crime. Right. And so it was a way to maintain that that uh, economic system under slavery. So anyway, this, this continues. So these young men are getting charged for loitering, and once they have a record, they have an uh, excuse to be, to be searched and charged with more serious crimes. And so what we're trying to figure out is a way of, of breaking that cycle. And so in working with this lawyer in the DA, these young people have an alternative to uh, incarceration alternative to probation by doing a training program on our farm. And so we are basically helping these young folks grow food for their families and communities, gain those job skills. Um, in the process, we do quite a bit of organizing Black Lives Matter. So these young men and, and a couple of young women have been able to 
kind of let us know and let the New York State Prisoner Justice Coalition know what's actually happening on the inside from their perspective and what are those policy changes that they want to see. And so these young people have had a chance to have their voice heard, um, you know, at these conferences and in these, these strategic planning meetings in order to try to reform uh, some of the, the most troubling laws around, around criminal justice as it impacts youth. And, and and Jalal, I think that that what, one of the, in picking up on on the on the piece that um, Leah was just talking about, I, I think that the connections you're making here, I, I think, are pretty unique. And I think people on this area, in this D.C. Maryland area, need to hear this, which is that um, there's this direct for you all historical connection between the the role farmers played in the struggle for civil rights down south. I mean, you had people, you were inspired by people like Curtis Hayes Muhammad, who is an amazing human being, um, and uh, uh, and what Fannie Lou Hamer did to create cooperatives in Mississippi um, as, as one of our greatest civil rights leaders, and how you see this connection between the land, between the land and farming uh, and, and um, the, the, the fight against racism and for liberation, how you see that connection. Yeah, I, I think those historical examples, especially like Fannie Lou Hamer, she was you know, really doing some of the, the great work that we were trying to continue in and making sure that, you know, access to land was still available and that they can make some, you know, economic development for the community, um, you know, providing jobs, providing there was like a piggy bank that farmers can come to if they wanted to, like, have their pigs slaughtered. So just like on, on a way to, like, have a cooperative way for everyone to put their resources together um, and provide some, like, hope and opportunity for a community but at the at the same time, organizing around some of the the, um, the oppression that was going on at that time and the repression that they were feeling from the police, um, and you know, in New York, we see it where the the communities that are giving that are over policed and over incarcerated are the same communities that don't have access to food and are dying from you know heart disease and diabetes and cancer. So. And, but then at the same time, they're going upstate to these prisons that used to be farms, you know. And so there's some of the direct connections between the prison industry and taking over some of the farmland, the agricultural industry that used to be really vibrant in New York. Um, and so using, trying to figure out a, a way that we can organize ourselves as farmers and as organizers to address these issues at the same time and, and creating this alliance. Um, where we can have a group of farmers that are like doing the work on the land and talking about restorative justice and talking about taking over old prisons and turning them into farms and and making sure that we can be providing jobs and organizing the people that are directly impacted by the criminal justice system and providing services for the families that are impacted by the criminal justice system and organizing them to address some of the issues around the policies around like the parole and the marijuana laws and all of those things, but at the same time, making a connection and, and doing that work around like Black Lives Matter and policing and, and everything um, that is going on at this moment. Um, and so like building this network, um, building this alliance that we can provide access to food, but also building an organizing network that we can organize and like, you know, cut, cut down some of the pressure that has been happening around Black Lives Matter. But making sure that we have something to look look forward to, you know, making sure that we have land that we can like teach ourselves how to like provide a job for ourselves and provide food for ourselves, and so like that combination is something that we've been working hard on. And I, I, I in the time we have left in this segment, I, I really want to um, have you tell a bit of the story about uh, about the Freedom Food Alliance and this Victory Bus Project and your vegetable powered bus and the work mm. you've been doing to get get people back and forth. Uh, and how that's had this ups and downs, but I think it's a fascinating, important part of what you all doing. Yeah, yeah, that 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 comes off of something actually just from you know hearing about the Victory Bus, I mean the Victory Gardens project through Herman Bell, um, and the work that he was doing, and, and going up there and actually going to the prisons that he was in and meeting with him on a regular basis and talking about how we can make these connections and. He was one of the people that were like, okay, we need to b- provide transportation for the families, you know, because of that disconnect that happens, because of the, the policing and the high levels of incarceration in the urban neighborhoods, and then, you know, people get in this place upstate, there's a, a huge transportation gap. And so 
um, the amount of you know the amount of money that it costs to go visit your family is is not really affordable for people in the city. Um, and it actually used to be a free bus that the government cut out in um, 2011, um, which cut out 2,000 families, more, a little wow. bit over 2,000 families per month. So there was 2,000 families that were going to visit their loved ones upstate that once that program got cut out, weren't, weren't able to stay connected, weren't able to have that, you know, families, they lost that connection. And it's real important for people inside to have that connection, especially when they're coming home. Um, and just thinking about doing their, their time in prison, it's helpful to have that family connection. Um, to just maintain yourself and to maintain your, you know, your mentality um, and not get lost in, in prison life. So, yeah, that was something that we wanted to start over again and just getting one bus that, you know, we converted to run off of vegetable oil and doing the outreach to get to the families and thinking about, okay, these families need access to food, so how can we, like, make sure when we're going on the trips we can also give the families food and then they have the option to either use it as a, a food package which they can deliver to their families they're going to visit or to bring it home with them. Um, and a lot of times they do both. You know, we will try to give them enough food that they can do both. Um, and, yeah, providing that service, but also talking about, yeah, Michelle Alexander's book and how, you know, there's this, this new Jim Crow system and how this prison system is, like, connected to slavery um, in so many ways that, that Leah wrote about in the article. Um, and, yeah, just using that as a base and trying to build it up. But we need to also just reach out to more families. And it's a thing that, you know, we're starting up and trying to get tighter. And, and once it goes, I think it's going to be really, really big. And um, it can spread throughout the country if we, you know, if we right. wanted to. But I think we want to focus in New York and get a couple prisons going. And, like, right now try to do 15 prisons in the Hudson Valley that are close to farms. And so when we're coming up from the city – providing that transportation, providing that food, we can also connect to, you know, so fire and to other farms that are next to these prisons and give people from the city an opportunity to get out the city and, you know, connect with the farmers and, like, build that relationship that we have lost today, you know. And, yeah, and just yeah. build a tighter network in this urban and rural lifestyle and making sure that they can be a part of, like, connecting to their food and getting out the stress of the city and, um getting away from the heavy incarceration that has happened um, and, and talk about a better way of living and talking about how we can build the future that we want to see, you know. And I, this is, to me, a, a very critically important discussion, and we look forward to doing more of this. And I have a closing thought here from Leah um, as we go to break, because I, I think this is the cusp of a new movement building this country with, uh, around food and black communities and liberation and, and the struggle um, that's going on. I think you all have tapped on something really important here, Leah Peniman, and uh, a kind of final thought from you before we have to take a break. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that it's a myth that, that food and lands are sort of the bastion of a privileged white. You know, it's like Natasha Bowen just published this great article. If you haven't seen it in um, Earth News about how the CSA, the community supported agriculture system, was actually invented by black farmers. And, you know, talking to Curtis Hayes Mohammed at my dinner table, he was telling us how the civil rights movement was built on the backs of the black farmer. And I think that our history of black people on land is strong and it's beautiful and um and i think it's just so critically important that we work to to not only heal from the racism that was imposed upon us through through slavery and through sharecropping um that connects us to land as well as well as work on the racism that you know that's imposed upon us through the, the prison justice system and the new the new jim crow and so i'm just i'm just really honored to get to work with Joseph Law and other farmers and visionaries that really aren't just working against what we don't want to see. We're really working toward the future that we do want to see for our communities. And we're going to be connecting to the article you all should read, Radical Farmers Use Fresh Food to Fight Racial Injustice in the New Jim Crow. Uh, yes Magazine, one of our print partners, Leah Penniman, is a farmer educator based in Albany, and wrote the article. Uh, Jalal Sabor is a farmer, prison abolitionist, who helped start this Freedom of Food Alliance. Uh, and we look forward to having them back on the program, our continued discussions with communities here in the Baltimore, D.C. area and around the country uh, for the new movement that's building. Thank you both so much for taking your time, and thank you both so much for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having us. It's my pleasure. We're going to take a very brief break here on Sound Bites, the Mark Steiner Show, and come right back, so don't go away.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Steiner, and you're listening to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, produced in Baltimore out of, w, out of WEAA 88.9 FM, your source for cool jazz and more, the voice of the community, and broadcasting to Marvel Public Radio, WSTL 90.7 FM. And we want you to join us here on, on March the 19th from 7 to 9 p.m. Be part of the focus group. We want to hear your voices about how we can make this program better. Donate two hours of your time to help make our soundbites even better, uh, dinner and a meal and meeting our staff and more. March 19th, 7 to 9 p.m., just write to Valerie Williams at Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E. That's Valerie at SteinerShow.org. We're about to have a conversation here with Senator Richard Madalino, a junior, uh, who is a Democrat who represents District 18, Montgomery County. He's vice chair of the Senate Budget and Taxation Committee, chair of the Health and Human Services Committee, and primary sponsor of Senate Bill 0532, or the Farmers' Rights Act, as it's called. Uh, and uh, also on the phone with Delegate Charles Otto, uh, who's a Republican, represents District 38A, Somerset and Worcester counties, and is a deputy minority whip and a member of the House Environmental and Transportation Committee and the House Natural Resources, Agriculture, and Open Space Subcommittee. And Delegate Otto and Senator Madalino, welcome to have you both here at the same time. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Senator, let me start with you, Senator, just to kind of outline what these two bills are. I mean, and and uh, there's been some consternation, which I'm sure Delegate will talk about, even with the name of the act, <laughs> the Farmers' Rights Act. Tell us what they mean. Sure. The, the, the Farmers' right, Rights Act tries to um, get at uh, the, the problem that some growers are having who are involved with the chicken industry. The act would ensure that contracts between growers and the poultry companies are easily readable and transparent. I don't know if your um, listeners know that um, right now um, Big Chicken has a, um, an approach to uh, farming and growing birds where they um, own the birds, place the birds with growers. Um, the growers have to buy the feed um, from the, the, the chicken aggregator, so like Tyson, Purdue, Mount Air, some of the big companies that are on the eastern shore, they have to buy the feed. They have to follow the rules. They have to um, deliver the chickens back. The only thing that they own in the process is the manure at the end of the day. Um, these contracts are <clears throat> competitions between growers. Every cycle, every growing cycle is a competition. You're never quite sure how much you're going to make, um, whether or not you're going to come in first or last. Uh, it is a uh, fascinating um, approach to economics that almost none of us as um, uh, employees or small business people in our own lives deal with. Uh, the aggregators um, don't let the various farmers talk to each other. They don't let an association um, form of, of growers. So what we're trying to say with this act is the, um, the contracts have to be clear and transparent. They even have to be of a minimum font size so that people, um, farmers can be able to read it allows the various growers to associate freely with one another and to discuss their contracts and working conditions um, between themselves and the variety of, of different um, aggregators that are on the shore so that they have the opportunity to understand what, what benefits and um, what costs the various um, companies are offering. Uh, it um, helps them uh, to protect themselves from having their contracts terminated without cause, especially after they've made sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars of investments in, in capital equipment, which you can see if, if the, the grower, uh, excuse me, if the aggregator is threatening you and you're, you've put in you know, $250,000 in new chicken houses, um, you're, you're in a uh, very uh, tenuous position. So it tries to give um, the, the farmers some protections um, in that uh, regard, and it gets at this tournament system of raising chickens and prohibits that so that you can, um, you can contract with um, a, a grower, excuse me, you can contract with an aggregator without having to deal with this unusual tournament system of growing. I appreciate the senator's intentions and want to provide some rights for farmers, but I prefer the protection of the Constitution rather than his bill here. I think uh, the USDA uh, Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Act, our administration, already regulates um, many of the contract aspects uh, between a contract livestock producer and uh, and the contractors or the 
big chicken, as the gentleman said. Uh, this is just promoted by uh, uh, big environment and big uh, um, anti-meat uh, uh, groups. And uh, I'm sort of insulted in some respects that uh, I've been involved in the contract uh, poultry business as a grower for uh, 30 years or more. And uh, to say that I have to have my rights spelled out to me in big letters because I can't read and lack the intelligence to uh, make uh, sound business decisions is pretty insulting. And uh, then further getting the attorney general's involvement in it, uh, just another layer of uh, uh, bureaucracy and redundancy that uh, I don't see a lot of protection in. And then it also doesn't allow for judicial review of the attorney general's uh, opinions in it. Uh, I think it just creates a massive uh, obstruction that uh, wouldn't the, the right the farmer would have is that he won't have any uh, opportunity to make any contracts in the state of Maryland if this is goes through. Well, it's, <clears throat> let me ask you about both this question about this, and and I and this is this has been a subject that's come up in different ways uh, over the last several years um, in Annapolis, and it's been the ser- part of a series of debates around issues around the, the cleaning up the bay, and it was at the heart of the lawsuit that took place uh, a couple of years back between environmental organizations and uh, and Purdue and the Hudson Farm. I wonder if 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 the if the if the subtext here is. It is, has to do with responsibility for what's happening to the waterways. Now, if that's is that, is that if that's more of the issue here than the, the than what's happening on the farms or 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 how they're connected. I mean, let me again ask Richard Madalino first, and then and Charles how to jump in. Well, I, I think Mark, they're all interconnected. I, I don't know if again your listeners realize just how large of a, a monocrop chicken has become. Um, on the eastern shore. Um, the shore um, used to have a far more diverse um, agricultural uh, range of products. Um, and now chicken accounts for, I think, close to 50% of, of the ar- agricultural industry on the, on the eastern shore. And, you know, as a result, um, more than 300 million broilers are raised on the eastern shore every year. They produce more than one and a half billion pounds of of manure. They 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 surpass the amount of manure that the human population um, produces uh, in 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 the state of Maryland, and that um, that is having a tremendous impact on the ecology of the shore. Um, phosphorus, nitrogen being put back into the the soil because the manure is turned into fertilizer. You have parts of the shore that are, and that's what these regulations that Governor O'Malley tried to get at and now Governor Hogan is trying to wrestle with, um, get at um, land that is saturated with phosphorus. You can't even put more phosphorus in because it's just getting into the groundwater. It's seeping into the, the rivers and the creeks that run into the bay and causing problems in the bay. And so um, there is a lot of conversation around how do we, how do we address um, this issue? How do we address it? environmentally and how do we address it um, economically uh, to try to deal with the, the severe pressure that farmers are, are put under as a result of the way this industry works. And for some people, and if, you know, Delegate Otto is a, is a grower who has had success, that's, that's great for him. Um, but it, it is a situation where, um, and we've heard from plenty of growers well, Senator, there's who, been are, a concerned, number of who are concerned about, I didn't, uh, Charlie, I didn't interrupt you, yeah. so um, that are concerned about um, how this industry um, treats them and the costs that are associated um, with the uh, impact of, of chicken in their, in their own um, farming business. Charles? Well, this is... The, you mentioned the Hudson case in Purdue, and and in fact, the, the what was noted there by the Air Force, I guess, inspection, <laughs> was that it was uh, biosolids from the town of Ocean City that were there. There were no associated problems with the uh, animal production that they had. They had some cattle on the farm that they made some improvements on based on the inspections, but the the chicken business was uh, was sound in that whole process, but they, they were suffered uh, 
for uh, multi-years of uh, continuous uh, assault by these uh, water keeper groups. And and I think that's just unfortunate, and that's the hostility that's uh, continued in the basis of this bill here, uh, Senate Bill 532, with the Farmers' Rights Act. I mean, it's astonishing what words you can put on something, uh, but... uh, Again, what I, what what um, the delegate is listing as hostility, we're trying to show as you know what we're 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 trying to help out um, the farmers who are caught in a vice. They're caught in a vice between the the companies. Um, they're caught in a vice between um, the environment and both what what has happened to diminish the environment and what cleanup they're responsible for. Um, we're trying to put them in a in a in a better position because right now. They they are getting squeezed on all sides, and some of us believe that um, you don't relieve pressure by just relieving the squeeze from an ecological standpoint and say, okay, you know, um, big chicken is gonna is, has has got you in a in a grip, so we're just going to you know release you from your environmental um, responsibilities. Um, we want to see balance um, on the shore. Um, in in a way that helps farmers. I'm sorry that Delegate Otto thinks that that's um, demeaning to to him because that's that's not the intent. The the small farmer has been the, the backbone of of America for 250 years, and we have to we have to make sure that far that small farmer can continue to survive and isn't overwhelmed by big chicken in our in our case on the eastern shore and by um, environmental standards that are that are untenable. So, but let me ask this, I mean, I, and I think that there are two issues here that I think are important to be on the table here during the conversation. And I, Senator Madalino, I was hearing what you're saying, and I've, you know, I've done a lot of, I've done lots of interviews on the shore with farmers and with people who are battling on either side of the whole questions here around uh, the water, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, but what, what do we know about how many of the farmers on the eastern shore who are involved with uh, any of the large aggregators feel the need for this. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, how, how many do we know that are actually saying we're feeling exploited and we're feeling like we're overwhelmed? Be, there are people I've met who walked away from Purdue, Mount Air, and Tyson and the rest and have started a different kind of farming operation, uh, whether it's growing eggs or going back to grain or doing other organic stuff and have moved, shifted over. But, I mean, how widespread is this? I mean, who, who are we... Who do you, who, 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 what's the constituency? Well, uh Mark, uh, I represent Somerset and Worcester counties, and, and of course, Somerset's one of the high, most uh, highly concentrated uh, poultry uh, growing areas in the state, and uh, that's why we're growing the chickens there. That's that's our basis of our economy. It's not just the farmers. It's it's, uh, it's uh, what's paying our taxes for the school system and uh, keeping other businesses, the car dealers and things going as well, the employment of the poultry industry. Um, is tremendous. I mean, those are all big factors. I was to a, the Farm Bureau uh, banquet in my county uh, Saturday night. I didn't have anybody coming up to me uh, saying, uh, embracing this uh, legislation and and wanting uh, some big protection. They just want the opportunity to survive and scratch a living out of the land. And, uh, and this uh, concept that we're uh, all this phosphorus is running off the land. It's minute amounts that we, science is just telling us that we're losing. And uh, we're going to do things in the future, as we always have, stepped up to the plate to improve their stewardship of the land. This is a tremendous thing that's just occurred. So um, two things, so, Mark. One of the things that I think is very important to note about this bill, um, in, one of the difficulties that, we hear from from growers is if if you've made if you've made and taken on large debt in order to continue to participate in some of these contracts with uh, with the with the poultry aggregators, you're in a difficult position about speaking up. And you you can imagine this through you know there are lots of examples that I'm sure people can identify with where. You know, you, you you don't necessarily go to your boss and you know and tell them that it's there's bad working conditions if you're worried that they're going to be you, you could be out of a job. So you keep your mouth shut and you don't 
you, you don't complain, but that doesn't mean that there, there aren't problems. Um, you've heard it yourself. You've talked about it in, in your question. Um, there are problems. We're trying to make it a better situation for the, the small farmers um, on the shore. You know, when um, just last week we had our bill before the Budget and Taxation Committee that was um, put in by Senator Mac Middleton from Charles County, who um, uh, is the, uh, I think, the only active farmer in um, the state Senate. And uh, uh, what Senator, Senator Middleton was, was trying to get at were tax credits to help um, farmers and businesses that um, need to be shipping manure, chicken manure off the eastern shore because the phosphorus problem um, is, that, is that bad. So I, I know, um, you know Dele- Delegate Otto is saying that it's, it's a minute amount, but I think there is um, a, a general consensus amongst the science community that there's too much phosphorus, too much nitrogen that's going into the bay, and we have to find a way to deal with it. Governor O'Malley said it. Governor Hogan is talking about it. Um, so we, we, we have to look at the science and, and start ad- addressing um, this issue around, around manure. You know, part, part of it would be if, if, there was a way, if there was a way that we could um, help farmers uh, come up with uh, more profitable um, businesses on the, uh, in, or crops on the shore to get out from chicken, um, that would be healthy for the ecology of, of the shore. So I don't want to, you know, I, I'm trying to be right. careful to talk about the ecology and the economy <laughs> and, and, and back and forth. And it's, I, I know it's far easier said well, there has to than be done, but it, I think it's important so, to look at. What, what were you saying, Charles? And there has to be a balance between the two. We can't put us out of business overnight. And uh, I'm thankful that the senator has such skilled uh, uh, background in soil scientists science and all. I've worked with it. I'm a certified crop advisor for the last uh, 25 years and uh, have grown up uh, growing crops and uh, understand that there's some hot spots that, uh, uh, with high levels of phosphorus that we deal with, and we've been dealing with it with the phosphorus site index since 19, uh, well, 2005. It went into full implementation. We've been just applying uh, crop removal rates of phosphorus, and uh, we just keep rattling on the same thing, impressing, impressing, impressing. And what reductions we've made in agriculture have been amazing. I know the science that's come about and the technology that we're using today compared to what I was doing 20 years ago, and the reductions we've made have been tremendous. Well, I, one of the things, I mean, <clears throat> is I, as I look at what's going on right now in this in this, in this this uh legislature during this session, and we see the battle over this, and we see the battle over um, what the PMT, how to regulate phosphorus and keep track of phosphorus on farms um, that most science would say is is what's at the heart of polluting a lot of the rivers that lead into the bay, at least from the shore side. That that so where does this lead us? I mean, is there, is there a way for this and this to come together so that there's a, a way to 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 address this issue? And you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it feels like the world it feels like the world the worlds are miles apart on this, uh, and and uh, and and part of that is. And I'll start with Charles Otto on this, and go to Rich Madalino before we close out. And, and part of this is that the, the, the argument that some people make that 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 Purdue and Tyson and the others are should be as responsible for what happens in the waterways as the farmers are. Well, Purdue has made a commitment, and currently that's the only uh, alternative use we have. It is shipping uh, those uh, pellets that they have at the plant in southern uh, Delaware, and they've been. Uh, losing money at it for operating costs uh, for years that they make the fertilizer pellets and ship it mainly for landscape use in other parts of the country and shipping it out of the watershed. When we have other opportunities, whether there's uh, gasification plants that they're speaking of, I haven't seen I haven't seen the shovel-ready stuff. I haven't seen any other thing built. So currently the best economic and environmental use of this manure is on land application. It's been a recycling uh, uh, hero story. It's been, a, it's been a gem, the growing of the crops that we've done with this chicken manure. And we've already reduced the rate, as I said, to crop removal. And uh, so the problem isn't getting any worse. 
So let's let's take our time here, and when the alternative uses come into play, I mean we're not the higher level soil tests. We're not going to apply more because we get you know it costs money to handle the manure. So, and, and Richard, go ahead. So the one of the one of the things that that we're trying to get at is. In essence, who pays? I think this is uh, one of the questions that you were trying to get uh, get at, Mark, in closing, is who pays for all of this? We've made a determination, and it was, I mean, to me, it was fascinating. That determination was made during the Ehrlich administration. Governor Ehrlich um, pushed through a measure through the General Assembly, which I think represented the clear consensus of the Republican Party at, at the moment was was um, make, make people who are responsible for for the problem, pay for the problem. So he pushed through um, the the wastewater management tax, which um, put put us, um, which created a fee um, for every toilet um, <laughs> in the state right. to try to clean up human waste. The O'Malley administration took that same concept forward with a stormwater management fee, trying to get at um, looking at having people who own impervious services pay for. Um, for that uh, cleanup requirements. And, and again, with, with the chicken industry, it's should the average taxpayer pay for the cover crop um, program, uh, which is what um, Delegate Otto was just talking about, which has had um, success in putting in, having farmers, incentivizing farmers to grow things that are going to eat, consume as much of the phosphorus and the nitrogen for the manure in the soil as opposed to um, letting it run out. And we've, we've had success with that. We need we need more of that. Who should pay for that? You and I, through our income taxes or sales taxes, um, the farmers who are already in the bind, or the chicken um, aggregators who are amongst the most successful corporations um, in, the, in the country. So to, to me, it's finding a way to say, look, you've, you, you're, you're the ones putting the, the demands on the farmers um, incentivizing them to grow and grow and grow more birds, to, which only leads to more manure. You should have a role in helping us um, pay for the the solution to, um, to to these problems, as opposed to just passing it off off on the the um, the average the average taxpayer. I mean, the, to me, the irony of the whole conversation that we've had around the so-called rain tax and that. Um, uh, Governor Hogan and probably Delegate Otto um, want to repeal just takes the responsibility away from those of us in the suburban and urban areas where the stormwater is produced, and and pushes more responsibility for cleanup on the on the farmers. I mean, Delegate Otto is out there working very hard to make sure um, people in Baltimore City are paying less to clean up the bay, which is only going to turn around and force his constituents to pay more. Um, especially put more pressure on the farmers um, to to clean up the bay when we all have um, a shared responsibility as Marylanders and a shared responsibility throughout the Chesapeake Bay watershed to look after this um, incredible resource that is that is you know that is identified with the state of Maryland culturally and is an important economic asset for for the state whether in tourism or in what is produced um, out of the water, and crabs and fish and oysters. Um, so it, it's, it, it is who, who pays for those, um, who pays for those um, improvements in, in an environment where so many people want to champion the idea of it's always going to be the tax the guy behind the tree um, to, to, to fix it, as opposed to um, taxing um, the person who's responsible. Uh, and, and Charles Otto, let me get a final thought from you on this. Well, it's just horrendous, the opinions some people have. Uh, I'm for the bay improvement. we got to improve the bay, and we do that by utilizing the nutrients that are in it with our um, promoting our aquaculture with oysters and clams and sea shellfish that will consume the nutrients. I think it's underutilized. I think the big dead spots and all, we have problems. We still ignore the Conowingo Dam and what comes down to Susquehanna and try to make it to take it lightly and uh, I'm disappointed in the things that are done there. I'm not afraid of uh, uh, the stewardship or ashamed of the stewardship the agricultural community has had and what we have done on the eastern shore. And I know the improvements that we made. We got a bay model telling us things that has 
uh, inaccurate numbers in it, and uh, when it's uh, calibrated correctly, perhaps we'll have a better picture of what needs to be done from here. This is fascinating. We're going to stay on this and, and can keep following this, and I, and I appreciate you both uh, really working around your schedules here to accommodate uh, the conversation for uh, sound bites in the Mark Steiner show today to be heard across Maryland. And uh, Delegate Charles Otto, Senator Richard Madaleno, it's always a pleasure to have both of you on the show uh, together or one-on-one. I thank you both so much for all you do. Thank you, Mark, for focusing on this issue. Right, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Delegate. We want to now say a few words about a local hero. Cherry Hill Urban Gardens' Juanita Yule passed away on February the 17th. Her colleagues at the Cherry Hill Urban Garden posted this on their Facebook page. Juanita started the garden in 2010 with the mission of saving the community. She worked tirelessly to spread her love of gardening and healthy eating, and her energy and passion touched the hearts of so many. She'll be dearly missed by her family, friends, and the entire Cherry Hill community. And here's an excerpt of our visit to Cherry Hills Urban Garden with Miss Juanita from the summer. Hello, my name is Juanita Ewell. I'm one of the managers of the Cherry Hill Urban Garden. The Cherry Hill Urban Garden is an initiative of the Cherry Hill Development Corporation, which is a longtime community association concerned about bringing new development and, and dealing with community issues that are of importance. Through the Development Corporation, we identified several areas of problems in the community that we wanted to be involved in, and one of those areas was food. We do not have a grocery store here at, in Cherry Hill. We have to go outside of the community to go to a supermarket, and the closest market is approximately two miles away. And a lot of the people in the community don't have their own cars. They rely on public transportation or illegal cabs, which are called hacks. So people pay hacks to take them to the store. I'm a longtime resident of Cherry Hill. I grew up here as a child, and I moved away as an adult, but then I came back to Cherry Hill, and I've been here now for about, this time, maybe about 30 years, and then I was here about 30 years before that. When I retired, I wanted to get involved in the community to try to help make improvements in the community, to help identify and and have some input into working on various problems in the community. And when we ident- when the Development Corporation identified food as one of our problems, I knew that was an area that I wanted to get involved in. So we looked around the community and found a suitable spot, which is the field that we're on. The field that we're on used to have public housing on this field, but about 15 years ago, Those houses were torn down, and it's been a vacant lot since that time. The size of the lot is an acre and a half. It had a lot of trash and trees and weeds and so forth on here. So we started in 2010 with the proposal to the housing authority. Then it took us a year. So by 2011, we had the field cleared. We got about a ton of trash and trees off this field, and then we built our infrastructure. We built 24, we have 24 raised beds that we built, and we grow food in those 24 beds. In addition to that, we have 16 rows of vegetables growing. Those 16 rows are, each one is 65 foot long and 4 foot wide. So we have the potential to grow a lot of food and feed a lot of people. We've been successful growing the vegetables, but we haven't been able to get the community involved like we'd like to. We're in dire need of volunteers. We will take volunteers wherever we can get them from. However, we encourage people in the community to come and get involved. But a lot of young people just aren't interested in farming. I'm talking about teenagers, young adults, it's difficult, and then a lot of them work. So, you know, it's hard to get the help that we need. 
We want to give out some good news about Cherry Hill. We want to show that we're about doing some positive things. Um, so you'll hear about something besides crime statistics. Do you think when the time comes where you'll have to give back this land, are you going to try and find another vacant lot, another spot for you to kind of continue your work here? Well, I'll tell you, I'm retired. I retired in 04, and I'm 72 years old. So the thought of finding another lot and starting over again doesn't really sound that great to me. However, I love what I do. I love gardening. I love my community. So no matter what, if I'm not actually out there finding the land, I'm going to be somewhere in the mix uh, encouraging hopefully the younger ones to and, and, and offering my assistance, my advice, my encouragement. I'm going to be on the scenes in some capacity, but I don't look forward to starting over. So we remember this amazing person, this agent for change, this wonderful human being, Juanita Ewell, who left us on February the 17th. He'll always be remembered. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producers are Mark Henry and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern at WEA is Anthony Nichols. Our intern and day in history research producer is Siana Greaves. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. And from your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>